Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Welcome to Back From The Borderline, emotional alchemy in your pocket. That's what this podcast is. We dive into everything relevant for those of you who have big feelings, existential thoughts, all that good stuff. Welcome to new listeners. Welcome returning listeners as well. Two episodes back, I released an episode called The Hidden Knowledge That Will Help You Find the Best Therapists and Avoid Harmful Ones. If you haven't listened to that episode, I highly recommend you check that one out first because I think it would be a great partner with this episode. Today, we are doing one of my favorite things, which is reading and talking about an article that I came across that I feel like everyone on earth should be exposed to and i know so many of you are incredibly busy and don't have the time to sit down and read an article so instead we'll be reading it together and you can listen to this at your own leisure why i chose this specific article is because i read a lot of stuff about mental health and every once in a while i'll come across this article that i will give the props and say something like everyone on earth should read this and why it's because it does the most in my opinion successful job of laying out a very complicated subject and succinctly describing it in a pretty concise way and after this article after we read this together you will have probably a better understanding of the history of mental health and psychiatry and where we've come from versus where we are now. And this is going to mean that you have a better understanding of these concepts and probably 90% of the population of the Western world, meaning, you know, Canada, the United States, UK, probably Australia. I say this because I don't have enough experience or exposure to how mental health is treated in other parts of the world, but I can only imagine that other parts of the world are experiencing similar issues and probably up against similar obstacles that we are here in the West. But I think it's an important thing that I take a moment to preface. I'd also like to share that I have a ton of voicemails that I need to get to. I encourage you to keep sending through your emails. I'm going to start responding and playing more listener voicemails next week on the podcast. So if you'd like to have your question answered or hear your voice on the podcast, you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking that little microphone icon that you see at the bottom of the screen. A last couple of housekeeping items. We are taking a new strategy on Instagram for the podcast. So if you're not already following us there, 
go to at back from the borderline on IG and give the podcast a follow. Lots of people are having some cool discussions on the posts and it has been fun to approach Instagram in a new and more creative way. You'll see when you check out the page. And secondly, I'm really excited to announce that this week marked a new era in the premium access level for the podcast. So as most of you know, my premium submarines are what I call my premium subscribers. And as of today, when this episode is dropping January 10th, 2023, we're starting a new thing for my premium submarines. We are going to be going for our stupid walks for our stupid mental health. So for my premium submarines every Tuesday, as well as getting the free public podcast episode, which is what you're listening to now, premium subscribers are going to also get a exclusive stupid walk for my stupid mental health episode as well. The reason why I'm starting this is because Walking and talking, in my opinion, is the best medicine, and sometimes what you need is someone to be there with you. So every week, I'll be releasing a stupid walk for my stupid mental health, and you, my premium subscriber, can join me and my dog Cody on our walk while we rant about what's going on. I get a little more personal about my recovery journey, and I encourage you to become a premium submarine and check it out. So you can do that by going and clicking the link at the bottom of this episode description or going to my website. So without further ado, let's get into this article today, shall we? I am really excited to share it with you and I cannot reiterate enough. You are going to come out of hearing this so much more informed and so much better positioned to advocate for yourself when you're seeking mental health treatment and just speaking to people in general about these things because the vast majority of society is deeply uninformed and tragically so because we are not aware of the deep, dark, and long history of psychiatry and mental health in the Western world. So by the end of this article, you will know. The author of this article is named Marco Ramos, and his titles and credentials are listed as Mark Ramos, MD, PhD. He's a historian of medicine and psychiatry resident at Yale University. His historical research focuses on mental health activism and revolutionary politics in Latin America. And I will link to Marcos's Twitter account in the episode description, as well as the link to this full article. Now, this article is published by a website called the Boston Review, if you are familiar with it. The Boston Review is a nonprofit and reader funded, so they do offer you the ability to become a supporting reader and join and support them monetarily, and you can check that out by clicking the link that I provide in the show notes as well. So let's read what Marco Ramos has written here in his article that is titled, Mental Illness is Not in Your Head. In 1990, 
President George Bush announced that a new era of discovery was dawning in brain research. Over the next several decades, the U.S. government poured billions of dollars into science that promised to revolutionize our understanding of psychiatric disorders, from depression and bipolar disorder to schizophrenia. Scientists imagined that mental illness in the future might be diagnosed with genetic tests, a simple blood draw, or perhaps a scan of your brain. New pharmaceuticals would target specific neurochemical imbalances resulting in more effective treatments. The 1990s, Bush declared, would be remembered as the decade of the brain. This brave new world of brain research also promised to free us of the stigma and discrimination attached to mental illness and addiction for centuries. Localizing psychiatric disorders in the brain would make them chronic medical diseases, just like diabetes and high cholesterol, instead of individual moral failings or deficiencies in character. While it was impossible to predict exactly what the future would bring, there was an overwhelming sense that psychiatric science was going to crack the mystery and wonder of this incredible organ, as Bush called it. Looking back as a psychiatrist and historian today, I find these hopes feel quaint. They remind me of other misplaced visions of technological futures from the 20th century, flying cars, pills for a whole day's nutrition. The reality of psychiatric practice is far less glamorous than the visions of its future that I grew up with. 30 years later, we still have no biological tests for psychiatric disorders, and none is in the pipeline. Instead, our diagnoses are based on criteria in a book, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, often called, derisively, the Bible of American Psychiatry. The DSM has gone through five editions in the last 70 years, and while the latest edition is almost 100 pages longer than the last, there is no evidence that it is any better than the version it replaced. None of the diagnoses is defined in terms of the brain. We have also not had any significant breakthroughs in treatment, for decades, the pharmaceutical industry has churned out dozens of antidepressants and antipsychotics, but there is no evidence that they are more effective than the drugs that emerged between 1950 and 1990. People with serious mental illness today are more likely to be homeless or die prematurely than at any point in the last 150 years, with lifespans that are 10 to 20 years less than the general population. Biological research has also failed to reveal why psychiatric drugs help some patients, but not others. When a patient asks me how an antidepressant works, I have to shrug my shoulders. We just don't know, but we do have evidence that there is about a 30% chance that it will help your mood. Perplexed, one patient responded, doesn't it have to do with neurotransmitters or something? I sighed. Yes, that was the theory for a while, but it didn't pan out. And how about the stigma? As anthropologist Helena Hansen has argued, the neuroscience of addiction has often reinforced stigma by reducing substance use to an individual problem instead of 
the result of structural factors rooted in longer histories of racial violence. American psychiatrists also diagnose black and brown patients with disproportionate rates of schizophrenia compared to white patients, a disparity that psychiatrist-sociologist Jonathan Metzl traces to psychiatrists in the 1970s who pathologized black activism as psychosis. Finally, black patients experiencing mental health crises, including children, are more likely to experience the violence of being physically restrained, tied to their beds in ways that resemble the experiences of asylum patients over a century ago. In 2015, the former director of the National Institute of Mental Health, NIMH, Thomas Insel, crystallized this disillusionment. Quote, I spent 13 years at NIMH, pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders, and when I look back, I realize that while I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large costs, I think 20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery for the tens of millions of people who have mental illness, end quote. It doesn't help that academic psychiatry feels out of touch today. Many people have underscored the profound importance of mental health amid the social isolation of the pandemic, racial violence in our society, and the increasingly hyper-competitive culture of schools, sports, and the market. But academic psychiatry's almost singular focus on brain-based research has meant that the profession has been largely absent from these conversations. And for what? All the cool papers on neurobiology have won academic grants and helped professors get promoted, but they've not meaningfully impacted the diagnosis and care of the millions of people suffering psychic distress. How did we end up here? If we've failed to understand psychiatric disorders biologically, what happens when we examine them historically? Two recent books by historians explore the crisis in biological psychiatry, tracing the political, economic, social, and professional factors that led psychiatrists to attempt to pin the reality of mental illness and the legitimacy of the profession on the brain. Written by leading historians in the field, these are big books, in heft and scope, that cover 200 years of the profession's failures. They reveal that U.S. psychiatry, across its history, has been dangerously susceptible to hype and cool, ranging from enthusiasm for brain dissection in the 1890s to the fanfare surrounding neurotransmitters and genetics nearly a hundred years later. Understanding the undulating history of psychiatric hype and crisis is crucial today as the profession builds towards its next trend, psychedelics, already heralded as the Renaissance and psychiatry's next frontier. These two histories demonstrate that the academic and corporate pursuit of such hype has neglected the perspectives of communities most affected by psychiatric research and care, resulting in significant psychological and bodily harm. The strengths and limitations of these important books push academic psychiatrists to re-examine our priorities. They challenge us to envision a future 
where the billions of dollars invested in biological research are instead redistributed to the communities who need it most in order to provide the resources necessary for radically reimagined forms of care that center whole humans instead of just brains. In her book, Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness, author Anne Harrington argues that the current crisis is just the latest in a long line of failures to discover the biology of mental illness over the last two centuries. In this sweeping study, the history of psychiatry undulates like the boom and bust of a speculative market. First, a wave builds with enthusiastic promises of revolutionary breakthroughs that will change psychiatry as we know it. And then, the wave collapses as psychiatrists fail to deliver on those bold promises. Crisis ensues, and after the requisite finger-pointing, the next wave of psychiatric revolution begins to build. Rinse and repeat. The first revolution in American psychiatry that Harrington tracks arrived in the 19th century. At the time, large lunatic asylums dominated the psychiatric landscape, such as the Blackwell's Island Hospital on what today is called Roosevelt Island in New York City. These institutions were designed to cure patients with mental disorders by placing them in the hospitable environment of the asylum architectural space. However, a series of journalistic exposés revealed that these asylums were overcrowded and underfunded, with patients living in deplorable, instead of therapeutic, conditions. For example, in 1887, journalist Elizabeth Seaman, who wrote under the pen name Nellie Bly, went undercover as a patient in Blackwell's Island Hospital and exposed horrible acts of brutality in her bestseller, Ten Days in a Madhouse. Asylum psychiatry faced a crisis of public trust. This is a sidebar from me. This is no longer the article. But what is coming up for me in this moment is that one season of American Horror Story where the lead character, her name is escaping me now, Sarah Paulson, that's the actress who plays her, is a journalist who goes undercover in this classic quote-unquote insane asylum environment. And of course, the conditions for these people are horrific. And if you haven't seen that season of American Horror Story, you should watch it. But that's what this is reminding me of. And it now is making me feel like Ryan Murphy, the creator of American Horror Story. This is likely the inspiration behind that series. I'll have to do more digging on that. So Ramos continues his article by saying, as Harrington, the author of this book, explains, European neuroanatomists came to the rescue. Unlike asylum physicians, anatomists were pessimistic about the potential for a cure. Building on eugenic theories, they believed that asylum patients were degenerates who were biologically unfit to cope with the stress of modern life. But they also believed that the mentally ill could provide a service to society after their deaths by offering their brains to science. The dissection of their pathological brains, the anatomists hoped, could reveal the biological causes of mental suffering. As the asylum transformed 
from a therapeutic institution into a site for research over the course of the late 19th century, thousands of dissections were performed on the bodies and brains of mostly poor patients without their consent. Harrington concludes that they revealed more or less nothing. The problem was that neuroanatomists had no idea what they were looking for. The psychiatrist Carl Jaspers summed up these anatomical efforts as, quote, brain mythology. Neuroanatomical dissection was a bust. Abandoning the therapeutic nihilism of the neuroanatomists, the second push for biological psychiatry swung to the other extreme. The early 20th century in the United States was a period of unbridled, desperate experimentation on patients' bodies in the desperate search for a cure. Andrew Skull's new book, Desperate Remedies, Psychiatry's Turbulent Quest to Cure Mental Illness, gives a chilling account of a period characterized by an orgy of experimentation. While covering much of the same historical ground as Harrington's study, Skull's more vivid account demonstrates that the foundations of biological psychiatry were built on violence inflicted upon the bodies of women, the poor, and people of color. During the period from 1910 to 1950 in the United States, Skull argues researchers treated their vulnerable patients as, quote, objects, not sentient beings, end quote. With few legal rights at the time, patients had little recourse for protesting doctors' invasive and haphazard experiments on their own bodies. Take the American psychiatrist Henry Cotton, who appears in both Harrington and Skull's accounts. In the 1910s and 20s, Cotton was convinced that all psychosis was septic in origin, a result of an infection because it had been demonstrated that one condition called general paralysis of the insane was caused by the syphilis spirochete treponema pallidum in the brain. I absolutely butchered the pronunciation of that. I apologize, Mr. Ramos. Based on this unproven theory of septic psychosis, Cotton concluded that psychosis could be treated by the surgical removal of potential sources of infection from patients' bodies. Cotton maimed and killed thousands of patients as he surgically removed teeth, appendices, ovaries, testes, colons, and more in the name of curing psychosis. The death rate of Cotton's colectomies was later determined to be more than 44%, with women representing a disproportionate number of his victims. Another example Skull examines is the Viennese physician Julius Wagner Jareg, who thought that inducing a high fever and convulsions might help psychiatric patients. He won the Nobel Prize of Medicine in 1927 for using malaria to induce high fever to treat patients with general paralysis of the insane. Harrington points out that at the famous St. Elizabeth's Hospital in Washington, D.C., certain patients with chronic psychosis who were among the most socially marginalized were turned into malaria reservoirs who stored the parasite in their bodies 
so that it could be distributed to other patients. If you are horrified by what you are hearing, you are not alone. So let's continue reading. Skull suggests that the most extreme experiment during this period was the lobotomy. The lobotomy procedure initially involved applying local anesthesia to the head, drilling through the skull, and cutting the frontal lobes of the brain with a blade. The surgeon stopped cutting the brain when the patient began to get, quote, confused, end quote. The innovation earned Portuguese neurologist Egan Moniz a Nobel Prize of Medicine in 1949. Do you start to clock these Nobel Prizes that are being gifted out to people committing extremely violent and degrading acts in the name of psychiatry? Another sidebar from me? Yes, this seems to be a trend and it's horrifying. The article continues, Walter Freeman, who popularized the lobotomy procedure in the United States, later innovated an approach that required insertion of an ice pick through each eye socket into the brain. Lobotomies were performed by the tens of thousands in the 1940s and 1950s, again, disproportionately on women. The 1940s and the 1950s was not that long ago. This is when many of our parents were born, our grandparents were alive during the 40s and 50s. These barbaric procedures were being performed not too long ago. Continuing the article, Ramos writes, Freeman described the effects of the procedure as changing his patients into people who were more like, quote, domestic invalid or household pet, quote, so that their behavior was easier for families and institutions to control. What stands out to me most when I read about the history of psychiatry and even things as they are today, especially when it comes to the medical model, is that the goal is not to ease suffering as much as it is to control and sedate. It is not to correct systemic failures and injustices. It is to control and sedate. (laughs) Marcos goes on to write, Sterilization was another invasive procedure popularized in American psychiatry during this period. Based upon older theories of degeneracy, sterilization was a eugenic rather than therapeutic tool. It was meant to keep people with mental illness from passing on their, quote, bad stock, end quote. Another quick sidebar from me here, we talked about what eugenics was, and it might be helpful that I provide a brief reminder of what these eugenic theories are that Ramos mentions. A definition of eugenics is the study of how to arrange reproduction within a human population to increase the occurrence of heritable characteristics regarded as desirable, Developed largely by Sir Francis Galton as a method of improving the human race, eugenics was increasingly discredited and unscientific as racially biased during the 20th century, especially after the adoption of its doctrines by the Nazis in order to justify the treatment of Jews, disabled people, and other minority groups. Yes, horrifying. 
Yes, many of these quote-unquote mental health treatments had a strong basis in eugenics. I mentioned this in previous podcast episodes and it keeps coming up again for a reason. I also mentioned this on a previous episode where we discussed the dark eugenic history of much of the DSM and some of these treatments is prominently seen in the movie Get Out. There is a strong theme of eugenics in the background of that film as well, and you can look into that on your own time. But the idea here is is that many of these quote-unquote treatments were created to filter out what some of these elite psychiatrists thought was bad genes, bad stock, and to sterilize and lobotomize people into submission. It is horrifying and it's scary and sad, but unfortunately, this is the truth that we have to face in order to come to a collective understanding of where we really are so that we can move forward in a better way. And you will be a much more informed person having become aware of this dark history. So let's reread that last sentence again and continue so that we can pick back up where we left off. Sterilization was another invasive procedure popularized in American psychiatry during this period. Based on older theories of degeneracy, sterilization was a eugenic rather than therapeutic tool. It was meant to keep people with mental illness from passing on their bad stock. The ethically fraught practice made its way to the Supreme Court in the infamous Buck v. Bell case in 1927, when Associate Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. argued that society was justified in seeking to, quote, prevent those who are manifestly unfit from continuing their kind, end quote. Yuck, gross, ugh. Ugh. In the decade that followed the decision, some 28,000 Americans diagnosed with, quote, feeble-mindedness, end quote, were sterilized. In the 1920s, 28,000 Americans were sterilized because they were labeled feeble-minded. Let that sink in. Skull and Harrington conclude that the only effective treatment that psychiatry today has inherited from this period of frenzied and dangerous experimentation is electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, believing falsely that seizure disorders and schizophrenia were antagonistic diseases. The Hungarian psychiatrist Ladislav Meduna sought to induce seizures with the powerful stimulant metrazole in schizophrenic patients in the 1930s. As a result of the sheer violence of the treatment, about 40% of patients suffered compression fractures of their spines. The practice was adapted over time to make it safer for patients, eventually evolving into today's ECT, which continues to be used in American psychiatry today. Current research demonstrates that ECT is safe and effective in the treatment of depression, but like researchers in the 1930s, we still don't even know why or how it works. A small sidebar from me, if you're familiar with James Davies, who is another incredible researcher and journalist in this field, who has written the book called Cracked, which we have referenced many times in the podcast before, I think he may have even different 
ideas about the effectiveness of ECT. There is, according to James and in his book, there is some really scary stuff happening with ECT and patients are complaining that it is leading to some pretty terrible side effects for them. So as usual, just do your own research. And I'm sure there are also people out there who have had good experience with ECT treatments as well. But I wanted to provide that other side of the picture here. Ramos continues by saying, rejecting this violent experimentation on the body, the next crop of psychiatric revolutionaries turned instead to an approach that focused solely on the mind, psychoanalysis. Sigmund Freud arrived in the United States in 1909, but his ideas did not take hold in the profession until after World War II. Experiences treating traumatized soldiers taught psychiatrists that the war's psychological wounds could be just as devastating as their physical injuries. Psychoanalysis developed what Skull calls a fragile hegemony over the field in the post-war period. Harrington emphasizes that psychiatrists turned to Freud's work because they believed it provided a distinctly medical approach to mental illness. An intervention, namely psychoanalysis, elucidated and treated the underlying cause of the patient's symptoms in the unconscious. By the 1950s, most psychiatry residency training programs in the United States were led by psychoanalysts, and many influential analysts consolidated their professional power by denigrating earlier somatic, which are body-based, approaches. So essentially what we're seeing here is there is a strong, with the advent of Freudian psychoanalysis, we're seeing a strong turn in the direction of the mind. It's all in the mind. And we are throwing away somatic-based approaches, which are body-based, being in our body, you know, focusing on that aspect. So that's important to understand this phase in the article and the place in history that we're at. In 1948... Ramos continues, for example, an influential group of analysts argued that lobotomy was not a therapy, but rather a quote, man-made self-destructive procedure that specifically destroys, end quote, parts of the brain essential to humanity. (laughs) Let that sink in. Lobotomy basically turned you into something that was not human anymore. Why were we doing this? Ramos continues, figures in popular culture also saw psychoanalysis as a solution to broader problems facing American society. At the annual conference of the American Psychiatric Association in 1948, President Harry Truman stated that, quote, experts in the field of psychiatry, end quote, were essential for safeguarding American sanity, which was the greatest prerequisite for peace. But just like the boom and bust of revolutions before it, psychoanalysis failed to deliver on its overambition, and the almost exclusive focus on the mind did little to prevent psychiatric harm against vulnerable communities. In the 1970s, gay activists vocally protested the pathologization of their sexuality in American psychiatry. These activists, including some gay psychiatrists, stormed the annual conferences of the American Psychiatry Association, also known as the APA, 
and successfully demanded the removal of homosexuality from the profession's catalog of disorders. That's right, as early as the 1970s, the DSM listed homosexuality as a mental disorder. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Ramos continues. The problem for activists and gay, feminist, black power, and disability movements in the 1970s was that institutional psychoanalysis embraced and conformed individuals to white, ableist, heterosexual, and upper-middle-class norms. For those whose identities challenged such norms, psychotherapy was more likely to harm than to heal. As members of the Chicago Gay Liberation Front proclaimed in a 1970 leaflet written directly to the American Medical Association, it states this, quote, We homosexuals of gay liberation believe that the adjustment school of therapy is not a valid approach to society. Mental health for women does not mean therapy for women. It means the elimination of male supremacy. Not therapy for blacks, but an end to racism. The poor don't need psychiatrists. They need democratic distribution of wealth. And in all capitals, they wrote, off the couches, into the streets. The article continues, their call to abandon the couch for the street was an indictment of an academic psychoanalytic profession composed largely of white men that had reified instead of challenged structures of oppression in American society. Many American analysts at mid-century held the belief, for example, that black people did not possess the psychological sophistication required for psychoanalytic work on the couch. Furthermore, historian Martin Summers has shown that in institutions that treated black patients, psychoanalysts reinforced older racist stereotypes of a, quote, distinctive black psyche, end quote, even in the face of data and clinical experience that undermined such a notion. To be sure, more radical visions of psychoanalysis emerged in the political fervor of the 1960s and 70s, but you have to look beyond Skull and Harrington's accounts to find them. In the French colony of Algiers, for example, Martinique-born psychiatrist Franz Fanon famously critiqued the anti-black violence of colonialism to imagine more liberatory forms of care. And in Latin America, my own work has shown how Marxist psychoanalysts in the early 1970s imagined a, quote, psychotherapy of the oppressed, end quote, that tied mental health to social and political liberation from capitalism and U.S. imperialism. But these radical efforts in the third world were far removed, geographically and politically, from the mainstream psychoanalysis discussed in these two books. For Skull and Harrington, perhaps the most damning blow to the legitimacy of American psychiatry came from within the profession itself. In 1973, forensic psychiatrist David Rosenhan published an experiment titled, quote, On Being Sane in Insane Places, in the journal Science. His famous study concluded that psychiatrists could not distinguish sanity from insanity. For the experiment, Rosenhan sent eight pseudo-patients who pretended to hear the words empty, dull, 
and THUD for interviews at psychiatric hospitals. Rosenhan found that all eight were admitted to the hospital by psychiatrists. Their average length of stay was 19 days. All but one of the patients were given a diagnosis of schizophrenia on discharge. Journalist Susanna Cahillan has more recently shown that Rosenhan fabricated many of his results, but at the time, the paper shook the foundations of the profession and broke the tenuous grip psychoanalysis held on the field. Enter the biological psychiatrists of the 1980s, who laid the groundwork for the biological revolution we find ourselves in today. Partly in response to Rosenhan's study, this new coalition of psychiatrists blamed the crisis in professional legitimacy on psychoanalysis. Its obscurantist theories, they argued, were more jargon than substance and had turned American psychiatry into a Tower of Babel, where psychiatrists could barely communicate meaningfully with each other. Research from as early as the 1960s showed that diagnosis among psychiatrists was not reliable statistically. That is, psychiatrists often disagreed on diagnosis even when assessing the same patient. Little sidebar for me here, this was true in my own case and in the case of many people I've spoken to in interviews on the podcast. Seeing different mental health professionals, they received completely different diagnoses from each one. And even some of these meetings that they had with psychiatrists were for as little as 15 minutes, and then they were given a diagnosis. It's wild. The article continues by saying, the influential psychiatrist Robert Spitzer believed that the solution was to radically reform a book that most professionals had ignored, the DSM. Spitzer and the DSM-3 task force gutted the psychoanalytic underpinnings of the manual and replaced it with what they believed were clear and objective criteria for each illness based upon an observable aspect of patient behavior that could guide treatment and research. The publication of the third edition of the DSM in 1980 heralded the birth of what proponents explicitly called a quote, biological revolution, end quote, in psychiatry. For evidence of this revolution, Spitzer and others pointed to developments in psychopharmacology, especially the introduction of the first effective antipsychotic, chlorpromazine, in 1954, and biological research that examined the role of neurotransmitters and genetics on mental illness. Research on the brain and the body they believed would eventually connect the diseases described behaviorally in the DSM-3 to their underlying biological causes. We now know that this hoped-for science never arrived. Psychiatry keeps waiting for its biological Godot. While the DSM-3 and subsequent editions, including 4 and 5, have improved diagnostic reliability, and by that um, the author means what it has improved, the DSM-3 and these recent editions of the DSM, is that it's more likely that you'll get the same diagnosis from various psychiatrists. That's one thing that has improved. So, 
He says, it has improved diagnostic reliability. Psychiatry continues to suffer from the problem of validity. In other words, the collection of symptoms that defined each quote-unquote disorder or quote-unquote condition in the DSM have still, after billions of dollars of investment, not been correlated with robust changes in our brains, blood, or genes. The off-sided claim, for example, that schizophrenia has a genetic basis has failed to pass scientific muster. As Skoll discusses, after failing to find a set of genes that could explain schizophrenia, researchers in the 2000s pinned their hopes on new genome-wide association studies. These studies could investigate hundreds of thousands of base pairs in the search for genetic linkages to psychiatric disorders, but these studies have not revealed a clear genetic basis for schizophrenia, or bipolar disorder for that matter. While combining hundreds of genetic sites can help explain at best 8% of the observed variants of schizophrenia, it's still possible for an individual to have many of these genetic variations without developing the disease. Prominent psychiatrist Michael Rutter and Rudolf Uher have reflected on the disappointment, quote, molecular genetic studies of psychiatric disorders have done a lot to find very little. In fact, the area of genome-wide association studies, psychiatric disorders have distinguished themselves from most types of physical illness by the absence of strong genetic associations. So let's unpack that for a second because it's pretty heavy and pretty academic, but also very important. So in my experience, as a layperson going through the mental health system in both the United States and the United Kingdom, those are my two use cases that I can use. I was told in both of those countries by various different mental health professionals that bipolar disorder was genetic and to do with chemical imbalances, but something like borderline personality disorder, for example, was not genetic. And the psychiatrist I saw in Los Angeles literally told me, we'll treat you for bipolar. We can manage that with medication. Trust me, you want bipolar. You don't want BPD because at least bipolar is more genetic and chemical based in your brain. And we can treat that with medication. What we're hearing in this paragraph right here, that heavy academic paragraph is that that is not true. And if you have been told that there is no basis in fact there, the person that's speaking to you is misinformed and is not up to date on current research, which is a big, big problem right now in the mental health space as a whole. So it's really important and you can understand why I found it almost like an act of community service to read this article to my listeners. And it is such a blessing that we are able to read the work and writing of someone like Marco Ramos here in 2023, completely free of charge. All this information is available. The sad part is, is that most people getting quote unquote mental health treatment are not being seen or serviced by people that have the most up-to-date information. It's a really big problem. So let's continue reading. While the turn to biology has not meaningfully impacted diagnosis or treatment, it has been wildly successful as a marketing strategy for psychopharmaceuticals. 
In fact, the most significant change in psychiatry over the last half century might be the birth of big pharma, not any revolution in biology. Psychiatric markets were attractive to pharmaceutical companies for at least two reasons in the 1980s. First, psychotropics are taken over long periods of time. Many patients are lifelong consumers. Second, self-perception and subjective experience play major roles in the diagnosis of a mental illness. This fact, pharma executives realized, means that demand can be influenced and manipulated by effective marketing that positions drugs as a solution to consumers' dissatisfaction with their lives. In the 1990s, drug companies invested millions to create direct-to-consumer advertisements that capitalized on the biological fervor of academic psychiatrists. These ads claimed, misleadingly, that their drugs targeted chemical imbalances in the brain that cause everyday feelings of depression and anxiety in Americans. Just so we can really set the tone here, because that's what podcasts are for, I wanted to take us back in time to the early 2000s when in the United States, the company for a medication named Zoloft released what was called the Sad Blob commercial. I looked up the history of the Sad Blob and it turns out it was created by animator and filmmaker Patrick Smith, who got his start in professional animation working on Beavis and Butthead, if you remember that cartoon of the 90s, before moving on to another popular cartoon, Daria, and eventually an advertisement production company. So he was asked, this animator and filmmaker was asked to turn a circular character into a personification of emotion. And so Smith came up with a design that he thought was the simplest and most effective way to express the emotion of sadness and depression, as well as the transition or recovery to happiness and interacting with the world. So in this article that I found about the creation of the Zoloft blob commercial, the article also interviews medical doctors, psychologists, and psychiatrists who point out how well Sad Blob, the Sad Blob character that Patrick Smith created, explained depression's scientific basis, while which doesn't exist as we know now, while encouraging viewers to feel empathy for those suffering from depression. The piece also crucially touches on the fact that the efficacy of the Zoloft Blob was double-edged, since it was ultimately just an ad for a company that wanted to sell the benefits of a specific drug. While it may have been really great at describing and depicting depression to a wide audience, the commercial mostly was created to fulfill its purpose of depicting Zoloft, and not a combination of therapy and other medications, as a cure for the condition. So let's take a trip back in time to the early 2000s, when you were chatting up on AIM, AOL Instant Messenger, rocking your Ed Hardy hats, watching The Simple Life, Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie on the TV, you know, just set the scene. Are you there? Okay, good. So, and then on the commercial break of The Simple Life, you see Sad Blob Zoloft pop up and you hear this. You know when you feel the weight of sadness. 
You may feel exhausted, hopeless, and anxious. Whatever you do, you feel lonely and don't enjoy the things you once loved. Things just don't feel like they used to. These are some symptoms of depression, a serious medical condition affecting over 20 million Americans. While the cause is unknown, depression may be related to an imbalance of natural chemicals between nerve cells in the brain. Prescription Zoloft works to correct this imbalance. You just shouldn't have to feel this way anymore. Only your doctor can diagnose depression. Zoloft is not for everyone. People taking MAOIs or Pemazide shouldn't take Zoloft. Side effects may include dry mouth insomnia, sexual side effects, diarrhea, nausea, and sleepiness. Zoloft is not habit-forming. Talk to your doctor about Zoloft, the number one prescribed brand of its kind. Zoloft. When you know more about what's wrong, you can help make it right. Yeah, you remember that shit? <laughs> Watching that commercial now back, it's been a long time. All you have to do is just search on YouTube original Zoloft commercial just so you can watch that because you have to see the imagery. It's really funny because the sad little blob was making noises like, mm, mm, mm. it sounded like some weird porn without the context of the... <laughs> of the of the freaking full video so that was sort of funny like just listening to it in audio form I was just imagining how like weird and creepy it sounds but yeah long story short this little sad blob is all sad and then he gets so soft and he's cured right so talk to your doctor if you're feeling sad so that we can clear your chemical imbalance in your brain and make you all better with Zoloft and these ads have not stopped. They still continue. They still have their horrifyingly long list of side effects. It's wild. The biggest shock that I had is when I moved to the UK and lived there for about six years and I noticed that they don't have any pharmaceutical ads. It's illegal in most parts of the world to advertise pharmaceutical drugs on TV. And the United States is one of the very few countries that even allows for this. So for those of you who are native to the U.S. and haven't spent much time outside, it is illegal to show commercials like that in much of the world. So let's continue reading the article. In addition to consumer demand, the industry also focused their considerable influence on prescribers. Pharma offered influential physicians at prestigious academic centers drug samples lucrative consulting gigs, and other incentives to peddle their products. Yes, psychiatrists and notable people in the field take considerable hefty payments from pharmaceutical companies. You can look into it, you can find lots of research on it, and it that's the tea. Continuing, Ramos writes, Today, the industry financially supports almost every journal and scientific meeting in psychiatry. Some 69% of the members of the task force of the current DSM-5 disclosed financial ties to the pharmaceutical industry. 69%. A 21% jump from disclosures reported by the task force for DSM-4. Pharma's influence on the DSM has contributed to an expansion of diagnostic categories so that the concept of mental illness itself has become more inclusive, increasing the size of potential drug markets. 
Over the past half century, pharma has also influenced the federal approval of drugs by the Food and Drug Administration, also known as the FDA. Today, the FDA gets 46% of its budget from companies filing drug applications, so-called industry user fees, and companies conduct the safety and efficacy trials on the drugs that they produce. This obvious conflict of interest has led pharma to distort evidence of safety and efficacy, hide negative results and side effect data, and hire ghostwriters to pen and write academic articles. While a number of major civil and criminal rulings have punished companies for these offenses, the structural source of this unethical behavior, the fact that the industry evaluates the products that it profits from, remains today. Big Pharma's heavy influence on the profession has played a major role in shifting the identity of the American psychiatrist from a psychoanalyst at mid-century to a prescriber of pharmaceuticals today. Again, sidebar for me, this tracks, right? For me, as a pro- I, I don't go to a psychiatrist to lay on a couch and talk about my feelings, which is If you are familiar with the, how are you feeling today? And like the kind old man with his glasses and his cigar looking like the grandpa from the parent trap sits there while you're on a couch asking you about your feelings and you talk about your dreams, that's psychoanalysis. That's what people of yesteryear thought a psychiatrist was. For the majority of us today, when we think of a psychiatrist, we just think of someone we sit down with for a few minutes to manage our medications and give us a diagnosis. That's my understanding, and I know that's the understanding of many of the people I've spoken to. And then you think of people like um, psychotherapists and therapists in general, like um, LMFTs and maybe social workers as the people that you go to to talk about your feelings. So the article continues by saying, while research has shown that psychotherapy is just as or more effective than drugs for anxiety, depression, and other disorders, psychiatrists generally focus on the prescription of drugs and send patients to psychologists and social workers for therapy. And this shift has paid off handsomely. The psychotropic drug industry today is worth almost $60 billion, and one in six Americans took a psychiatric medication in the last year. That is effective marketing, my friends. Good business. Good business and a lot of people feeling very bad. So the article continues. But if the pharmaceutical industry has invested so heavily in psychiatry, why have there been no breakthroughs in drug treatment? A major reason is that the industry has spent billions of dollars more on advertising psychiatric medications than on the actual research and development of novel drugs. As psychiatrist David Healy has shown, money embarked for R&D, which also stands for research and development, is often not intended to produce genuine innovation. (laughs) I'm just like, wow. Almost all of the psychopharmaceuticals produced since 1990 have been copycats that mimic older generic pharmaceuticals with only minor chemical modifications. These unfortunately named Me Too drugs work no better clinically than the drugs that came before them, 
but their slight biochemical novelty means that they can be patented so that pharma can charge insurance companies top dollar. I remember a part of Cracked, James Davies' books, where he talks about these Me Too drugs, and I'm going to probably butcher the explanation of it, so I encourage you to go and research in your own time, and I could also do another episode on this particular thing if you're interested in it, so reach out to me and let me know. But to put it as succinctly as possible, a pretty generic antidepressant was repackaged, turned pink, and then sold to women for a period of time as a treatment for, I think, PCOS or PMDD. So like for premenstrual dysphoric disorder. And long story short, it came out and women were not being told they were taking an antidepressant. They were being told that they were taking whatever little name, period alta, right? To help you feel better on your periods. And then it came out that it was just a me too drug. It was repackaged as an anti or as a PMDD drug. These people were taking antidepressants or it might've even been an antipsychotic. I need to look into this, but it was either an antipsychotic or an antidepressant being repackaged, relabeled, turned pink and given to women for PMDD. They found out about it and then shit hit the fan, right? Scary stuff, but this is happening and we need to know about it. That's why if someone is very quick to prescribe you a drug for a mental health quote unquote disorder, you should be asking, what is this used for on and off label? What are the side effects? What is the withdrawal like of this? Do I have to take this forever or do, can I take it for a short period of time? And if it's a short period of time, what are the withdrawal effects? How does it feel to wean off of this? Do you support patients and weaning off of medications that you put them on? And if you get any heebie-jeebies or weird vibes from anybody by asking them this question, regardless of how powerful and experienced they are and whatever fucking titles come after their names, you should trust your intuition because the person writing this article right now that we are reading is a psychiatrist who is seeing clearly the issues and bravely speaking up about this. So start asking questions. The article continues by saying, perhaps the worst news is that big pharma having created and capitalized on psychiatric markets is now jumping ship. Anthropologist Joe Dumit has shown that most psychiatric drugs will soon go off patent, so companies will be forced to charge less for them. With the market already saturated with pharmaceutical copycats and no significant scientific biological breakthroughs in sight, there is suddenly little room for growth. Almost all of the major pharmaceutical companies have decided to divest from psychiatric drug research and turn to more promising sectors, especially the development of biologics and other cancer drugs. So again, that part is pretty academic, but what's he saying here? He's basically saying that big pharma is starting to see that basically psychiatric drug stuff is all played out. They've, they've milked as much as they possibly could. They've made as many pink PMDD pills that used to be antipsychotics as they possibly fucking could at this point. And so now it's time to just say divest 
from the psychiatric drug research, divesting means like, let's sell and leave. Let's get out of here. What? Our, our work here is done. We can't fuck this up anymore. Let's go to a more profitable area. And the more profitable area, according to Marco Ramos, who is writing this article, is biologics and other maybe cancer medications. So do you see? The idea here has never been to heal and help. It has been to make money, control, and sedate. That is the fact. So Ramos continues by saying, does psychiatry then have a future? With the pharmaceutical well running dry, Harrington and Skull offer a few solutions beyond vague statements about the need for humility in academic psychiatry and the message that psychiatrists should focus on psychosocial not just biological approaches to treatment. And if you want to learn more about psychosocial, biological, the different models and theories of mental health that exist, you can listen to that episode that I mentioned in the beginning. And I'll link it also in the episode description because I did an entire episode breaking down these different theories and models of mental health. Skoll also wonders whether a return to psychotherapy might be the answer. Outpatient psychiatry in the United States today is often based on brief 15 to 30 minute visits that narrowly focus on medication management and symptom checklists. Skull laments the loss of connection that psychoanalysis represented for some mostly privileged American patients at mid-century. At least psychiatrists listened to patients in the 1950s, he emphasizes. Unfortunately, Psychotherapy in the last 50 years has become more pill-like in itself. Standardized, quick, corporate, and cheap. In the 1980s and 90s, managed care magnified the critiques of some psychiatrists that the intensive and exploratory nature of long-term psychoanalysis was a large investment in time and money with only modest gains. They advocated for faster and more affordable forms of care that included not only drugs, but also new cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT techniques that, as historian Hannah Zeven has argued, devalued the healing power of the therapist herself. Certain CBT approaches attempted to reduce therapists' role to largely automated dialogue and manualized programs defined in workbooks and computer programs written for each disorder. Cough, DBT, cough, 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 cough. (laughs) In the CBT model, the patient's thoughts and feelings were understood as scripts, that could be reprogrammed while the introspection and psychological insight, the listening valued by Skull, was denigrated by some practitioners as navel-gazing. So again, this is an academic way here, Ramos is saying, as, you know, um, these therapists who are advocating for this like quick-fix pill-like therapy like CBT, they were kind of giving shit to psychoanalysis saying it they was calling it navel gazing and what navel gazing is is just kind of like la-di-da let me talk about my feelings and my dreams they thought it was pointless but in reality that's been some of the most effective work i've done this navel gazing right i'm a big fan as you all know of carl jung doing dream analysis and looking into the archetypes and learning about the collective unconscious all of these things 
were incredibly beneficial to me. And what we're hearing here is they're casting off these forms of therapy and we need to look closely here because they're not doing it because it's not effective. They're doing it because it takes too long and it's too expensive and they want something that is therapeutic, but basically like a pill, but therapy. And that is where CBT entered the framework. Now, I know that many of you listening either have a BPD diagnosis, identify with the symptoms of BPD or other disorders, and you may hear lots of mention of something called DBT if you are thinking, huh, CBT, DBT, those sound very similar. Well, you would be right because they are very similar and Marsha Linehan, the the creator of DBT therapy, did take a lot from CBT. Now, I'm not saying that DBT isn't effective at all because it's clearly helped lots of people. Marsha Linehan also was a Zen master herself, and I truly believe after reading her memoir and diving into some DBT skills myself is that there's a lot of good there, and I think that she did her best to create a therapeutic framework that fell in line with the boys club of the time that allowed itself to fit into these frameworks of insurance companies and medications and the DSM. I've said it once and I've said it a million times. I would love to live in a reality and witness the type of therapeutic program someone like Marsha Linehan would have created if she wasn't constrained by the medical model of mental health. So continuing with the article again, (laughs) as a result, Traditional psychoanalysis has become almost impossible to come by today. While many therapists adopt an eclectic approach that borrows insights from CBT and various strands of psychoanalysis in practice, the kind of long-term, open-ended therapy that traditional psychoanalysis represented is extremely difficult to access now. Insurance refuses to cover it, and patients who want psychoanalysis are often forced to pay high fees out of pocket. I understand this completely. I would love nothing more than to work with a Jungian analyst for long-term therapy for myself. I make a decent above average income with my full-time job and I cannot for the life of me find a Jungian analyst that takes insurance so that's off the table and many of these providers charge up to $200 an hour just for their work so it's priced out even for people like me who I consider myself to be privileged so forget about it if you are someone who is um some of the most vulnerable among us. It's just not even something they could even consider. So it's really, really sad reality. Ramos continues, with the decline of psychoanalysis, therapy has continued to verge toward corporate automation. Psychologists and social workers today often search for gig work across growing digital platforms like Talkspace to earn around 25 an hour with little control over their hours, fees, or working conditions. I've spoken to friends who are therapists who have tried working on digital platforms like Talkspace and BetterHelp. I have had friends and I myself have sought therapy on these platforms. I think I used Talkspace and it was 
not a good experience for me. And my friends who have spoken to me about working as therapists on these platforms have described it not being a good experience either. Others engage in therapy with an artificially intelligent and usually feminized chatbot. Wow. Disturbingly, these digital apps are largely unregulated and have questionable standards of care. Given financial pressure from insurance companies and a health system that demands quick fixes, the future of psychotherapy frankly looks bleak, both for patients who desire human contact and for providers whose labor is being devalued to the point of automated erasure. The only real source of excitement on psychiatry's horizon seems to be psychedelics, which Harrington mentions very briefly in her conclusion. Nonprofit organizations and academic researchers are currently conducting over 50 FDA trials of MDMA, ecstasy, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, LSD, acid, mescaline, ibogaine, and ayahuasca for a wide range of psychiatric disorders. Esketamine has already been approved for treatment-resistant depression. Researchers and journalists, such as Michael Pollan, have dubbed these developments a psychedelic renaissance that will revolutionize psychiatry, open new understandings of the connection between mind and brain, and provide benefit to thousands of patients. But doesn't this all sound too familiar? The psychedelic renaissance feels like the next revolution, with its bombastic claims massive financial investment, and at this point, uncertain benefit for patients. The verdict is still out about efficacy, but what's already clear is that the pharmaceutical industry has taken notice. In 2020, London-based Compass Pathways, which received seed investment from Peter Thiel's Thiel Capital, was the first psychedelic pharmaceutical company to go public with a post-IPO run-up valuation of $1.1 billion. Not to be left out, Big Pharma is also up to its usual tricks. As I've noted elsewhere, Johnson & Johnson was interested in ketamine's benefit for depression, but couldn't patent the drug because it was already a cheap generic. So, Johnson & Johnson decided to make a copycat, chemically isolating one of the compound's mirror images. They called this Me Too compound Spravato, patented the drug, and now charge almost $1,000 per dose. Companies are already using similar tactics to isolate patentable compounds from psychoactive botanicals that indigenous communities have used for centuries, raising ethical concerns about how the burgeoning psychedelic industry perpetuates Euro-American exploitation of indigenous knowledge, plants, and land in settler colonies. This psychedelic renaissance, then, is likely just the next stage of the larger revolution in big pharma that started in the 1980s. And whatever clinical benefits psychedelics end up offering, drugs are not a solution for the structural problems that plague our mental health system. Big Pharma and the academic psychiatrists who partner with the industry will continue to profit. And psychedelics can only help those who have access to them in our society, mostly white, upper-middle-class people with private insurance. It's pretty wild, you know, that, you know, a drug that you could just get on the street, you could call your run-of-the-mill drug dealer and get ketamine, right? For, I don't know how much ketamine costs because I've never bought ketamine from a drug dealer. Like, actually, I haven't. 
<laughs> but it's probably a fuck of a lot cheaper than the $1,000 per dose knockoff that Johnson and Johnson created and is the exact same thing as street drug ketamine if you get it from a good drug dealer. But no, the drug dealer is a criminal peddling illegal drugs while Johnson and Johnson is a pharmaceutical company selling you healing medications. Do you see the fucking bullshittery of this? Let it sink in. It doesn't make sense. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. So the article, let me just, let me woo saw myself for a minute. While both of these impressive books cover significant historical ground, they also miss something critical about psychiatry's past that limits their vision of its future. They fail to confront the profession's role in the mass incarceration of the black community over the last half century. For Harrington and Skull, carceral approaches to psychiatry largely came to an end at a population level with the closure of large asylums and the rise of deinstitutionalization of movement in the 1960s that attempted to transition care from psychiatric hospitals to communities. In this common narrative, the problem with deinstitutionalization, that is a hard word to pronounce when your brain is tired, just saying. The problem with deinstitutionalization was one of neoliberal neglect. Patients were discharged en masse from institutions with few resources and little support, leading to high rates of homelessness among people with serious mental illness. But this story overlooks the silent and subtle ways that incarceration has become further intertwined with psychiatry. As historian Ann Parsons has argued, the asylum did not disappear with deinstitutionalization. Instead, it returned in the form of the modern prison industrial complex. Some of the largest mental health centers in the country currently operate in prisons, and today there are more people with serious psychiatric illness in Americans' prisons than in its remaining psychiatric hospitals. Around 40% of people diagnosed with serious mental illness will face incarceration in their lifetimes. In many cases, as a consequence of the racist policies that undergrid the ongoing war on drugs, this carceral mental health is highly segregated. While psychiatric hospitals tend to house white, middle-aged patients, prisons disproportionately confine people with psychiatric disorders who are black and under the age of 40. Moreover, sociologist Anthony Ryan Hatch has argued that the use of prison psychopharmaceuticals has allowed for incarceration at the level of the brain. Prison policy strategists have framed psychopharmaceuticals not as medical treatments, but rather as an important component of techno-corrections, that is, the strategic application of new technologies in the effort to reduce the costs of mass incarceration and minimize the risks prisoners pose to society. Sounds like a lot of words to say chemical castration to me and confinement. Hmm. In 2000, some 95% of maximum or high-security state prisons were distributing psychiatric drugs to incarcerated people. 95%. The facts are missing from these books because both Harrington and Skull are ultimately focused on elite academic psychiatrists, a community that tends to avoid work in prisons. As Hatch notes, 
almost all of our public knowledge about psychopharmaceuticals comes from their use among the unincarcerated, while knowledge about prison psychotropics tends to be as tightly guarded as the inmates themselves. This silence is a form of oppression that covers up both the use of psychotropics as a technology of custodial control and the failure to provide people in prison, many of whom are traumatized by their incarceration, with the humane treatment that they deserve. As a psychiatrist myself, I believe that an important part of this tragedy is the silence and lack of accountability among those who represent our field. Despite the decreasing life expectancy of people with mental illness, high rates of incarceration and homelessness, and the failure of the biological paradigm, the biopsychiatric research machine just keeps growing. In his own new book, Healing, Our Path from Mental Illness to Mental Health, Incel argues that the failures of biological psychiatry's past indicate that we should double down on brain research instead of re-examining our priorities. Incel's successor at the NIMH, Joshua Gordon, has maintained the organization's focus on biopsychiatric research, narrowly construed. While both Harrington and Skull point to a crisis in the profession today, the scarier truth is that many in the academy are just proceeding with business as usual. The real crisis in academic psychiatry, in other words, is that there is no crisis. If these histories of elite academic practitioners do not show us the whole problem, they're also not going to produce imaginative solutions. Searching for answers requires decentering the academy and looking to narratives that have largely been neglected in standard histories of psychiatry. The historical work of disability activist and scholar Liat Ben Moshe, for example, turns to mad communities who have embraced neurodivergence not as a medical problem that needs to be fixed, but as an identity that should be celebrated. Mad activists and professional allies in the 1970s, such as anti-psychiatrist Thomas Saz, successfully demanded the abolition of violent psychiatric hospitals and carceral practices in American society. While this movement to deinstitutionalize psychiatry did not result in the wholesale liberation of people with disabilities in the United States, Ben Mosh agrees that it offers important lessons about how communities can successfully resist the structures that repress them in the name of care. Ben Mosh's work not only provides a means for critically examining the psychiatric violence of the past, but also offers what she calls genealogies for thinking about futures that seem otherwise unimaginable. Genealogies of resistance conceptualize health not in terms of access to individualized treatment provided by academic physicians, but rather in terms of collective liberation from the structural conditions that produce the vast extent of psychological suffering and trauma. These genealogies undergird the work of communities and professionals fighting today to abolish the carceral system and to imagine nonviolent forms of care through peer support soteria houses, and political protest. In Los Angeles last year, for example, a vocal coalition of community organizers, academics, and officials together successfully stopped the construction of a psychiatric jail and advocated for the reinvestment of those funds into initiatives for community-based mental health care. Care first, jails last, they are demanding. 
This just goes to show what we can accomplish if we have knowledge and we work together. So the article continues, there are also unexpected lessons here for more privileged communities. Material wealth does not completely insulate people from the psychological damage of capitalism, of course. Burnout and depression are endemic among upper-middle-class physicians and medical students, to name just one example. Over a third of students at Yale, many of whom come from privileged backgrounds, seek mental health services for psychic distress. As psychotherapist Gary Greenberg has bluntly put it, the fact is, if we didn't have such a fucked-up society, I'd be out of a job. Psychological suffering in the upper crust of society is not only evidence that we need increased access to care, whether through pharmaceuticals or psychotherapy. It is also a call to mobilize against the pathogenic features of our local social climates, from toxic training programs and high-pressure university cultures to dehumanizing factory floors. As historian Joanna Radin encouraged me to discuss in my undergraduate course on the history of drugs, the question is not only, what is the right drug for me, but also, what would the world have to look like for me to not need drugs at all? Harrington and Skull surely did not intend for their books to be read this way, but we might understand them as a call to defund biological psychiatry in the United States, to refuse yet another promise of a revolution or renaissance that would save an academic project that has done little to help and lots to harm. We do not need to be neuroscientists to know that psychological and emotional suffering is real or legitimate, and that a pill, however effective, cannot abolish the carceral and capitalist system that is the source of so much of our collective trauma. As these books teach us, psychiatric paradigms are fragile, and perhaps biology's tenuous grip on the profession is finally easing under the strain of these recent critiques. The future of our profession, of psychiatry, if it has one, does not lie in tired promises of biological breakthroughs. It depends on unearthing and embracing neglected histories and genealogies of solidarity with the communities that academic psychiatry claims to serve. So that's the end of the article. Again, Marco Ramos is a historian of medicine and psychiatry resident at Yale University. If you want to read the article in full or share it with someone you care about, you can share this episode. You can also find the link to the full article in the episode description. Throughout this article, Marco Ramos has hyperlinked so many different studies. So if you go to this article, you will see that on all these claims that he's making, he's hyperlinked studies and other articles that branch off of this. So you could spend, if you really wanted to, days reading everything that's hyperlinked here. And he doesn't make any claims here that are not provable. Reading articles like this, while they can be confronting and they can give rise to some really uncomfortable emotions and helpless and hopeless feelings, it's also giving me a lot of hope for what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast and the people that I've been interviewing. We are on, or at rather, 
a precipice, I believe. I believe we're at a crossroads. I think people are becoming fed up. And what it's going to take now, just like Marco Ramos describes in this article, how this group of people in California protested against the creation of a psychiatric jail in their community. They said, fuck that. No, we're going to fight against this and we're going to advocate to where we think these funds should go. I really believe we need to be moving towards a collective trauma-informed approach that addresses unconscious collective trauma. And I'm hopeful and incredible psychiatrists are out there like Marco Ramos, like so many of the people I've interviewed here on this podcast. So don't lose hope, but also never forget that you are your own best advocate. Inform yourself. Most people can't sit through a five minute audio video, much less an hour and a half long podcast episode, but it's going to take sitting down and listening to long form content nuanced conversations and seeing the gray areas and looking underneath the rocks that we don't want to look under in order to make change and better advocate for yourself, your family, your children, the people in the, that come after us. We have to stop thinking just about ourselves. It's so, so incredibly important that we move away from this medical model, this focus purely on the mind this individual-focused approach that we have here in the West. But with people like Marco Ramos and many others, I believe we are marching towards a much more hopeful future. So that's it for today's episode. Congratulations on making it through a heavy one. But I really hope that you are leaving this episode, this experience today, feeling really empowered. You have so much more knowledge now than when you came into this and you can use that in future conversations in your life, including those that you have with your mental health providers. Now, it's really important that we don't just have this approach that mental health providers are all bad or all good. It's important that we see this dialectically right? There are systemic issues here and I see the system right now of psychiatry and mental health and all this shit, big pharma, blah, blah. It's like a big group project, right? Nobody really wants to redo their homework. Everyone wants to kind of lob the work off onto the other person. There's very few people that want to step up and say, okay, I'll take on this work. And someone like Marco Ramos is one of those people that says, okay, I'll step up and I'll take this on. There's a lot less people like Marco in positions of power than there should be. And it's my hope that this will change. I believe that the millennial generation, the Gen Z generation, even some of these Gen Xers, they are spicier. They're wanting to bring down the system, but in a way where people can get genuine help and treatment and healing from these practices. What's the point of going to school for this many years to become a psychiatrist and spend all this money and hopefully going into the profession to help people when you're entering a system that doesn't help people? That's one of the reasons why I quit my graduate school program of being a therapist because I was like, 
I'm going to go into st- a shit ton of student loan debt to what? Practice under this system that's deeply flawed. And now I'm realizing that my efforts and work is much better spent <laughs> doing what I'm doing now. Because if I had credentials and I was seeing clients and therapists and people, then I would not be able to do what I'm doing now. I would be coming under a lot of fire for that and my license might be at risk. And so people like Marco Ramos and many people in their fields are taking a huge risk and really putting themselves out there. So how can you use this in your life? Well, first you can listen. You can share it with the people that you love. If you really, really have a great relationship with your therapist or your providers you could share this episode with them i already know so many providers have reached out to me and said that their clients shared my podcast with them and so now they share it with other clients so that's another way that you can help you can go and read this full article that's going to be in the episode description and click into some of the hyperlinked studies and other articles that Marco Ramos has included there so that you can deepen your understanding and you can start familiarizing yourself with this so that you can better handle conversations with mental health providers. It's important to know. So I'll leave it there. Don't forget that this week we started the stupid walk for our stupid mental health over on the premium version of the podcast. So I think you should become a premium submarine and get started with us. What better way to kick off your new year than start with the resolution to get out with us, all me and the premium submarines, and go on your stupid walk for your stupid mental health. So you can join us by doing that and access the very first episode of that by going to the website and clicking to unlock premium access or just clicking the link at the very bottom of this episode. So I hope you have an amazing week. Let all this information soak in. Go do some research of your own. And I hope you feel like you learned a lot today. Remember, the future is bright. I really believe this. And human beings from the beginning of time have been able to accomplish incredible things when we have knowledge, we work together, and we decide that we want something better. So never forget that. I love you lots, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.